0: What we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Light and darkness, sin and forgiveness. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation
1: where you are not quite sure if you've got the right ticket for travelling. I was recently on the way home from London and um, missed the train that I normally get, and because I uh, buy the cheap tickets, there's only certain trains I can catch. And uh, I wasn't el- I'm sure I wasn't eligible for the next train that was leaving London, so I went to the Chiltern Railways counter and uh, explained the situation. They said, oh, your ticket's fine, you'll be fine, go on the train. So I went and got the next train. I was still convinced I wasn't meant to be on that train, but it did get me home. And, uh, but it was such an awkward journey home. I was still not convinced I had the right ticket, and every time the doors went shh, <laughs> my heart sank, and I was like looking up and looking around, expecting the conductor to come along to check my ticket. And uh, it didn't happen, but it was such a stressful trip home. There was everyone else sitting quite relaxed and comfortable, I guess, happy that their ticket was valid. And I must admit, every time that door went, I felt my heart go. And it's like, oh no, I'm going to have to pay an extra £50 pounds, or whatever it might be. And uh, I just wasn't comfortable. The guard never came round, and I got home fine. And uh, whether I still owe them £50, pounds, I don't know. But um, it was not a relaxing journey home for me. And uh, I wasn't confident I had the right ticket. And I felt uncomfortable. And that doubt just did not give me peace on the way home. And that's a little bit like our salvation, isn't it? Where we can have doubts. Sometimes we can doubt whether our salvation is valid. Maybe we don't feel confident that we have been saved. We call this assurance, don't we? we often call it assurance. And we may share with one another at times. You know, that we struggle with assurance at times. We maybe have doubts and that confidence in our salvation. Have doubts whether it's, is it really true? Is it real? And maybe we don't always relax and enjoy our salvation if we're struck with those doubts. And in this letter in 1 John, John is writing to a church that are suffering doubts. And it seems he's he's writing to a church that has just split. If you flick over to chapter 2, verse 19, you'll read that they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they'd belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us seems that some have left the church, some have gone from them. And that's caused upset, that's perhaps caused doubt, that's caused concern. And John uses this letter to encourage the believers that remained, that they're doing the right things, that their salvation is secure in their saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. John is looking to encourage them, to assure them of their salvation. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in London in, in the last century, I mean, it sounds like it was ages ago, but it was only, what, 50, 40, 50 years ago, but uh, it was the last century, Qu- uh, it's quoted as saying, assurance is not essential for salvation, but it is essential to the joy of salvation. I feel like I'll stop there. That's just It's, it's so pithy and helpful, that, isn't it? Assurance is not essential for salvation. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But it's essential to the joy of salvation. That's what John is writing in this letter, is wanting them to have his readers to have joy in their salvation. Those remaining in the church would have had doubts, wouldn't they? Were they right or wrong? Other people have left their views. Are their views right or wrong? They would have started to doubt. And John wants to encourage them that they're on the right track. And I'm hoping that just starting, at looking just at this first chapter of John 1, that we will be encouraged to look to Christ. And be assured that our salvation is secure. This is the uh, first of three letters attributed to John. John the Apostle, although he's not mentioned in name, titled John. We believe it's written by John, who wrote the Gospel of John. There's a lot of similarities in the way he writes. And the Book of Revelation. So that's to John. It's a very personal letter as well. It's written, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, My dear children. Verse 1, and then verse 7, dear friends. It's a very personal letter. He seems to know who he's writing to, to this church. It's a personal letter. He writes them to encourage them. And he seeks to encourage them by reminding them who God is. Reminding them of their salvation. And helping them to see how they should be living their lives as Christians. And hoping through that that they can be assured that they are on the correct path. Of life to glorify God and spend eternity with their Savior, and he concludes the letter in uh, chapter five, verse thirteen, um, to say, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life." That's what John wants them to know. He writes this letter so they might know they have eternal life. They have that confidence that they're on the right track. And even at the beginning of the first passage, verse 4, at the beginning of verse 1, we write this to make our or your joy complete. He wants their joy to be complete. He wants them to know that they have eternal life. So we're just going to look at these few verses in uh, chapter 1 under three headings. First of all, God is real. And through Him, we can have real joy. God is real, and through Him, We can have real joy. John starts this letter really abruptly, doesn't he? He just goes straight into it. There's no no introduction like Paul writes often in his letters. He's straight in there. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard. And it's almost like he's speaking in a riddle. But it's very similar to his gospel. If you read the first verses of the gospel of John, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So like in his gospel, here in his, jot, uh, in his letter, John uses these opening sentences. He's actually describing the Lord Jesus Christ, calling him here the word of life, the word that is God, and that word that was with God in the beginning. You could put Jesus in there, that which was from the beginning, Jesus who was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which we have touched, this is what we proclaim concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus, Jesus appeared, we have seen him, we proclaim to him. He was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he's talking here about the law, Jesus Christ. And he's telling him that he has appeared. God's own son has appeared on earth. And he says he has heard Jesus with his own ears. He said he's seen Jesus with his own eyes. He said he's actually touched Jesus. And here he is telling his readers, I know this person, I've heard him, I've seen him, I've touched him. He is a real person. God is real. Just notice that progression, that he's heard Jesus and then seen him and then touched him. If he just stopped by saying, I'd heard Jesus, perhaps there would have been that element of doubt. Are you sure it was him? How do you know it was him? You only heard him. He goes on to say, I saw him, I've seen him, I've touched him. This is conclusive evidence from John that can't be refuted. It's conclusive evidence that should be believed and listened to. And that's why he's telling his readers this as he speaks, as he writes even. I guess it's a little bit like me saying to you, I've heard Tom Cruise speaking at an event recently. And then actually you said, well, did you actually see him? I said, no, I couldn't see him. but He was a long way off, but I could hear him. And I know what his voice sounds I know it was him. You know, are you sure it was Tom Cruise and not someone impersonating him or someone who sounds like him? But if I actually said, actually, I went to an event and I heard Tom Cruise speak and actually I got to meet him and I spoke to him and I heard him directly and actually he shook my hand, I touched him, then I I would hope you believe me, I don't know how much you trust my uh, words, but I'd hope you believe I'd actually met Tom Cruise and uh, we could Anyone else in the Tom Cruise brackets, by the way. So it's only I've seen Maverick recently, so it was in my mind. So, but um, you get the point, don't you? So that emphasis, you know, the building up, I've touched, I've shook the hand, I met them. It's so much more stronger and powerful. And that's what John is saying. He's seen and touched Jesus. Jesus is God fully in human form. He's heard him speak, he's seen him. This is God in the flesh. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 13, as John describes himself. Uh, As the disciple that Jesus loved, how he laid on Jesus at the table to ask the question. He laid on Jesus. John touched Jesus. He knew him as an individual. He knew him as a as a person, and he knew who he was and how he lived his life. And so John is telling his readers that God is real. He's witnessed it himself, and he is real. He is life. Notice the use of life that's repeated three times there. The word of life, and then the life appeared. And then eternal life in those first couple of verses. Jesus is life. He is alive. He is real. We know that Jesus and the Father are one with the Holy Spirit. So God is life. God is real. But he goes on to say more than that. He says, yes, he's real, but he is eternal. He proclaims Jesus as eternal. He says he was there at the beginning of the world, at creation. And in declaring Jesus as eternal, he's saying he has no beginning. He has no end. He's always existed and always will exist. Jesus, yes, was at the beginning of the world, the beginning of time, but he existed before this. He is eternal. John says, doesn't he, at the end of verse 2, that Jesus' the word was with the Father and has appeared with them, further emphasizing how Jesus has left his Father's presence in heaven to visit them in human form. God is... And always has been and always will be real. But John continues in verse 3 to tell his readers that through this they may have fellowship together. And that this fellowship is also with God the Father and Jesus. God is real. The gospel is real. And that brings fellowship. That's the outcome of believing that God is real. And this fellowship will lead them. Ultimately, to their joy being complete, as he finishes there in verse 5, we write this to make our joy complete, or you may have a footnote in your Bible saying you could, that can be interpreted as we write this to make your joy complete, our joy, your joy. But it's, 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 it's all encompassing there. And so John's seeking to encourage his readers, remind them of the ultimate joy they can have through fellowship with the real God. We often ask, or perhaps we don't, I may ask, what is fellowship? What well, is that? You know, we say fellowship. Is it about having a cup of tea after church? Well, yes, that is nice. But actually, fellowship is really has a really deep spiritual meaning to it, doesn't it? It's a status of Christians who together have received the grace of God, the salvation of Jesus, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's an amazing thing. It's a common status we have as Christians Receiving that and sharing, and through each which, we have a relationship with one another. And ultimately, a relationship with the living, triune God. So yeah, fellowship, it's a real deep thing. That's that common basis in the gospel that we share. It's that partnership together. It's that common spiritual bond, a partnership. Our partnership in the gospel, Paul talks of, doesn't he? And that's what fellowship is. So because God is real, we can have fellowship with him and with one another. Who are at the same standing as fallen but forgiven sinners in front of his saviour, the Lord Jesus. And so for those of us who are Christians, we worship a real God. We have fellowship with a living God. And we can hear, listen to the Apostle Paul John telling us about this. The Apostle heard Jesus, who saw him, who touched him. Who is that strong eyewitness account? No, we don't worship a God made of stone or wood, a God fashioned by man, a God, God dreamed up by somebody. We worship the living, eternal God. That's amazing to think. These verses from Isaiah 44, I'll read to you. You've no doubt heard it before. The carpenter measures with a line. And makes an outline with a marker. Verse thirteen of Isaiah forty four. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He goes on in verse fifteen. The wood is used for fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire, and bakes bread. He uh, and prepares his uh, bakes bread. But he also fashions a god out of the wood and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill and also warms himself. Ah, I am warm. See the fire. But from the rest of the wood he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. Isaiah continues to say, They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds are closed so they cannot understand. We cannot create our God. We don't need to create our God. We believe in and have the one and only true and living God. John is telling his readers about and we can join with them in reading about him here. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty Read in Revelation 1. Don't let anyone ever sow doubt on the reality of the eternal God. Here we've got John's eyewitness account, revealing Christ to us. And we can join with him and the readers, enjoying our relationship with this God and with one another. That should lead us to real joy in that we can have that relationship with the God, the God who created this world, the God who created each one of us, the God who sent his son to save us. God is real. Don't let anyone let you doubt that. God is real, and we've got John's eyewitness account in here. And so through that, we can have real joy in knowing that our God is real. But John then continues his letter to give give reasons for this joy, And for confidence in our salvation. So secondly, God is pure. Through him, we are purified. God is pure. Through him, we are purified. John starts the next section in verse 5 with a declaration of what he has heard. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So from him being the word of life, being Jesus. So he goes straight into it. This is not John's message. This is what he's heard from God himself. This is what he's seen of God. And what it, the God that he's seen and touched, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that he's heard? God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. God is pure. God is holy. God has no darkness in him at all no impurity no sin God is the ultimate holy being absolute complete perfection it's too much for our puny minds to capture isn't it but that's what it is it's such an important thing to understand that God is pure pure and holy we read in Habakkuk 1 12 and 13 Lord are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? You will never die. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Oh God is pure. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. We read in Isaiah and Revelation, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. He is pure. He has no sin in him. At all. We read later in in John, in in chapter 4 of this letter, actually, that God is love. But he starts his letter by saying, God is light. God is pure. That being a summary of all the things he saw, of this personal witness of Jesus. And that is the ultimate statement about our God, that he is pure, he is light, he is holy. There is no sin in him at all. That is so important, absolutely needed, before his love. Because if God was to love us from from a non-pure basis. It would be tainted. Just like our love to one another is tainted. We need a pure God to love us. And so God is pure. God is light. And because he's absolutely pure. And holy. And unblemished. That's what we need, isn't it? For our salvation. That's the starting point. For us to be cleansed and to be made right and pure in his sight. I just want to take a small, small tangent at this point. As we looked looking at God is light. God is pure. But there's another element to God is light. I've picked out the purity of it. But there's actually another element to God is light. What is light? What does it do? Well, it reveals things. It shows up darkness, doesn't it? If you turn on a light in a dark room, the light spills to all parts of the room. Unless there's an obstruction, the light fills the space. God is light. God has revealed himself to the whole world. There is no part of God's world that has not seen his light. We were looking at this just the other week in Psalm 19. God's glory is shown in his creation. And Paul teaches, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 1, that no person with is with excuse because God has revealed himself to all people. God is light. His light reveals himself to the whole world. And so God has revealed himself ultimately in the life of Jesus on earth, showing John and other eyewitnesses of that light in action, the holy and pure life. Of Jesus. And so God wants us to be known. He's shown us all we are without excuse. Through his creation. You know, if we play hide and seek in the dark, we used to do it here with ETC when I was a leader, which could get a bit chaotic and dangerous at times. But hide and seek in the dark, what do you do? You don't want to let any light in. You don't want to light any light shine. You don't want your phone on, so it can Flash up and and light you. You want to be in the darkest corner. You want to be where you cannot be seen. There'll be no illumination. You do not want to be seen. You want to remain hidden. That's the point of the game. But God is light. He doesn't remain hidden. He shines into all places. God has revealed himself and wants to be known by all people. And we don't have to look very far to see God reveal himself in his creation. And yet we also have his word, don't we? God reveals himself to us in his word. So we know that God is light and he reveals himself through that. And God is pure. But what about you and I? I'm not pure. We're not pure. We're sinful. We're not light. We have darkness in us. We have darkness in my heart. You have darkness in your hearts. And actually if we think Otherwise, John tells us we deceive ourselves. We make out God to be a liar. Strong words. Look with me in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with God, with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. See that progression. If we claim to be Christians, having fellowship with God, but are not living a holy life, walking um, walking in darkness. We are living a lie. But it seems that some are saying even more than this. They said in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we claim we have not sinned, so we are not pure because we don't walk in the light all the time. We walk in darkness. But it seems that some were saying, more than that, they were almost disclaiming they were without sin. If we claim to be without sin, verse 8. If we claim we have not sinned, verse 10. We make God out to be a liar. But no, we are sinners. We are not pure. We have darkness in us. Paul writes in Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we know through confession of our sins... To God, we can be forgiven and purified from all sin, all unrighteousness. It says there, doesn't he, in verse three? We, um, oh, I've lost my, uh, I've lost it. Sorry, to carry on. If we claim to have fellowship, walk in the darkness. Um, Verse 6, we lie and do not live by the truth, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we're walking in the light, we're seeking to live a Christian life, then that light will expose our our sin. But through confession of our sin, we can be forgiven and purified. So for those of us who've confessed our sins, we have been purified. We have been washed clean. Washed clean by what? By the blood of Jesus, it says there in verse 7. Our past life has been cleansed and purified. And we're seen by God as having no darkness at all. Can you believe that? What an amazing truth. That God looks on us as purified. We are cleansed. Because he's he's taken Jesus' life and through his blood purified us and made it look to him that we are clean, because we are clean through the blood of Jesus. What an amazing truth John is telling his readers here, and we can live on. Isaiah says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God is pure. And we are purified through Jesus' blood. Spilt for us at the cross. What a wonderful truth that we need to remind ourselves. As Christians, we are pure in God's sight. It's almost unbelievable when we think about it. But that's what he tells us in his word here through his servant, John. Let us be encouraged to know that we are purified through Jesus' blood. Let us sink down and think as a Christian, you are purified, you are cleansed through the blood of Jesus. You are made pure in God's sight. But before we now move on, I just want to note, there's a challenge in here as well. That as purified sinners, we need to live a pure life. This is not an excuse to live as we want to. It so says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. So if we claim to know God, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to have confessed our sins, and yet walk in darkness, and yet are not walking and living a holy life. We are living a lie, John says. We cannot just live as we want to. This doesn't give us a free reign to do whatever we want, that we've been washed pure. We are to walk in the light. We are to seek to live a pure and holy life. I wonder how you, I wonder how I am living as a Christian. Are we living as we want to because we've been saved, we've been washed clean so we can live as we want and God will wash me clean again. Are we thinking it's just okay? God has forgiven me so I can do what I want. No. No. And these solemn words from Hebrews 10 say, If, we'd keep, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit? Of grace, These are strong. These are solemn words. We must not fall into the sin of thinking God's forgiveness and purifying us frees us to live however we want to. No, we must seek to live by walking in the light, by seeking to live a holy life and to live as God wants us to. I wonder what you need to do. I wonder what I need to do. Well, I know what I need to do, but I wonder what you need to think through, what you need to do in your life. To live a more holy life. Are you walking in the darkness? Or are you walking in the light? Are you conning yourself? Are you deceiving yourself? As the word says here. Are you living a lie? God is purified. Through him we are purified. And we should live. With that knowledge. In seeking to live. And work out and walk. A holy life. To honour God in what we do. And to walk with him. Reflecting and worshipping him for purifying us through the blood of Jesus. But fortunately, when we fail, and we don't do that, there is forgiveness. And John goes on to encourage that and to close with our final point. We'll look at God is faithful and just. Through him, we are forgiven. God is faithful and just. Through him, we are forgiven. One of my favourite verses in scripture, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just. He is faithful and will keep his promises. So if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. That's what he says, if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive us. God is just. He needs a sacrifice to be made for our sins. But he's accepted the blood of Jesus that purifies us. Jesus' death on the cross, his blood being spilt, has been accepted by God. It's fulfilled his requirements for justice over sin. Our sin, that Jesus' blood, was spilt for. Paul says in Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Those who have confessed their sins trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. Because God is real, because he is faithful and he is just, we can know that we are forgiven. We can have full confidence in our forgiveness. It's not about us. It's about what God has done for us. And us bowing our knee and confessing our sins before him. The eternal God that John met... And tells us about here, the eternal God who John knows is real and tells us is real. The eternal God who keeps all his promises has the power and authority to forgive our sins if we confess them to him. Notice with me the wording though it says, if we confess our sins, it doesn't say, if we confess we are sinful. Now, you may think I'm playing with words, but it's important, isn't it? And as we were thinking this morning in Psalm 32, this wording is specific if we confess our sins. As we were looking this morning I saying in Psalm 32, we need to confess our actual sins, our individual sins, and confess them to the Lord. Psalm verse 32, we were at this morning, verses 3 to 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Acknowledging our sins to God can be difficult. Can be awkward. Can be painful. Because we are ashamed of them. When the psalmist kept silent, he was groaning. Day and night, your hand was heavy on him; His conscience was heavy. His strength was sapped. Then he confessed his sins. And he knew the forgiveness of the Lord. And that's what we need to do. We need to bring our sins, our individual sins to God. We need to really think about the sins that we commit. Bring them to God in repentance. And asking, as we te- James was teaching the children this morning, help in fighting them. Lead us not into temptation. So we think about those sins that we repeatedly fall into. Pray about them. Confess them. Ask for help in fighting them and not being led into temptation. We need to bring our sins, our individual sins, before our God. Yes, we're not going to see and know every single one of our sins because we think we're better than we are. And so we need to ask God to show us our sins. And so... Reveal our sins to us so we can confess them to him and seek to change our ways to walk in the light. And so as Christians, if we've confessed our sins and trusted in Jesus to say us, God says we are forgiven. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise to take hold of. I'm an engineer and I like straight lines and calculations and things. And to me, that is just, it's so clear if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's clear. It's simple. It's the God's word. It's the gospel. Do we really understand it? Do we really focus on it? Consider it? Worship? Do we live out in response seeking to live a holy life? Seeking to tell other people about Jesus and how simple the gospel is. It should be wonderful encouragement to each one of us tonight who knows this, who knows you've confessed your sins, to know that your sins are forgiven. We can take God at his word. If we've confessed our sins, he will, he has forgiven us and has purified us. Whatever doubt you may have, just ask yourself. Whatever the devil is throwing at you, tempting you, doubting you, throwing things at you, ask yourself, have I confessed my sin? And if you can say yes, God, will, God says he has forgiven you and he has purified you. And that is the ultimate promise and security that we need. The God who is eternal, who is real and is completely trustworthy will forgive you and purify you. If you're not a Christian here tonight or on, on live stream, then these words are for you as well. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. That's it. The gospel is so simple. Tonight, pray to God those words. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess you've broken his law. Confess that you're selfish. You put yourself first. Confess that you're greedy and you want more money and you want more things. We want more pleasures in life. Confess whatever that sin is that's taking you distracting you from God. Come before him remembering that God is eternal and that you have an eternal soul that will live forever either in God's presence or under the punishment, his eternal punishment in hell. All you need to do tonight, now is to confess your sins before God in prayer. Call out to him to forgive you and to purify you. Do it now, do it tonight. Don't wait any longer and you can know the peace and the joy Of being forgiven. Of being purified. Of knowing that God looks on you as clean and pure. Because God is faithful and just. Through him we are forgiven. So let's be reminded. Let us be encouraged as Christians tonight. I hope that is encouragement to you. We worship the one and only true real God. We have fellowship with him. We have real life and through that we have real joy. That might not be happiness every day, but that is real joy in knowing our sins are forgiven and that we are pure in God's sight. We worship a pure God who has purified us through the blood of Jesus. We worship a God who is faithful and just, through whom we are forgiven. John was seeking to encourage his readers, they were on the right track, and remind them Of the confidence, knowledge and security of their salvation in Jesus. And so let's all be encouraged that we're on the right track. We've got the right ticket. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. Because you've got John's word for it here. And ultimately that is God's word for it in his Bible. John who met and knew and touched Jesus. Told us what he heard. So therefore we have God's word for it here through John, his servant. And we should be confident in our salvation because it's all of God and not of us. If we've confessed our sins, God is faithful and just. And has forgiven us our sins and purified us from all unrighteousness.